0: It's a pleasure to be with you, uh, not only as a fellow EFCA participant, but but as a pastor in a local EFCA church, so good to be with you. I'm going to be spending time in the very text that Greg just mentioned, so if you have your Bibles, look at the tail end of 1 John. The apostle ends his first letter with an abrupt statement, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This may be the strangest ending in the New Testament. Fair enough, Mark is pretty strange. But just to be clear, it's a little awkward. It carries some interpretive mystery. Why did the apostle end with this statement, especially when idols and idolatry are never mentioned? In general, we can say that this last statement and the few verses before it are serving as a pastoral postscript like the final big reminders or important exhortations a parent may give their child when they drop them off for a week at summer camp. Postscripts typically seek to apply in brief the thrust of what has been said, often in a summarizing way, packaging it in one phrase or statement. But they can also offer the first few steps, the first few action steps required by the reader to follow. Like a mom reminding her son where she packed his underwear. Like my wife did my son, who the year previous at summer camp several years ago wore the same pair for six straight days. (laughs) A pastoral postscript can place in front of the reader an understanding of what they need to do next or maybe what they're about to face. Having the category of a pastoral postscript goes a long way to limit the seeming disconnect between the last few verses of 1 John. Yet to be fair, the abruptness of it is still a bit shocking. While commentaries discuss a plethora of options regarding its meaning and role, certainly its abruptness must be part of the point. It leaves you hanging a bit, almost asking more questions than it answers. Questions the reader might be thinking could be these. Hey, John, what idols are you talking about? Mr. Apostle, could you be a bit more specific? Or maybe, John, could you explain how we are to keep ourselves from idols in practice? Ultimately, the abruptness of this ending serves as the real punchline. And it asks its own targeted question of the reader whom will you serve? In a sense, the ending of 1 John communicates to us not only in word, but in deed. Its strangeness disarms us so as to probe on the inside, to force us to heed the warning. Rather than being a mere interpretive conundrum, we might want to say that this statement is a textually mediated pastoral act. A way God can get past our thinking and our logic and even our interpretive skill set and speak right to our hearts. Whom will you serve? We've talked around the closing of 1 John, specifically 1 John 5 21. Now let's interpret it. Two aspects are worthy of note. First, it begins with the paternal language, dear children. This way of speaking to the church is common in the New Testament but here it has a more specific use in this context. At the beginning of this pastoral postscript, in verse 19, the apostle John says this, quote, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. By speaking this way, John divides humanity into two groups. The first group is those that belong to God with the title children that reflects the full biblical doctrine of adoption. They are participants in abundant life that God provides in Jesus Christ. The second group is described as those who belong to the evil one and are under his control. The Greek word, the NIV, translates as control has the sense of lying in a helpless state or lacking vitality or literally lifelessness. The contrast is sharp. The new and eternal life given to the children of God is entirely distinct from the rest of the world. Thus, when John addresses the church with this abrupt pastoral warning, he addresses them with a title that reminds them of the life they've been given, life from the living God himself. A second thing worthy to note in 1 John 5, 21 is that the specific warning is for God's children to keep yourselves from idols. In many ways, the contrast just mentioned continues here. In Leviticus, for example, idols are described as lifeless, Leviticus 26, 30. And the prophet Isaiah notes the sad irony that the same material a person might use to warm himself and cook his food, he also uses to form an idol for worship, Isaiah 44. So the logic goes something like this, why would you life receiving children of the living God. Ever lower yourself to serve lifeless gods that suck the life from the rest of the world. See yourself as you are in Christ and see the idols in the world for what they are. The warning of this abrupt ending of 1 John therefore is to avoid any false conceptions of God and worship. The verses just before 1 John 5 21 say as much. Three times the apostle says, We know, and then goes on to fill such knowledge with descriptions of the reality of the Son of God and the truth about him. In verse, in verse 20, for example, he says that the Son of God, quote, has given us understanding, and specifically understanding, quote, so that we may know him who is true. Even more, quote, we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Do you hear those two important words that Greg mentioned and that run throughout the epistle? Truth and life. Right after this, John ends, 1 John, with that abrupt ending. After all this language of truth and life and even some of the themes of love and the difference between the groups in the world, he says, dear children, Hence, in contrast from the world, keep yourselves from idols. In essence, after an entire letter filled with the reality of truth and life in Jesus, the apostle ends with a pastoral warning that prepares the reader for what they're about to face in the real world, falsehood and lifelessness. Dear children, he is saying, hold fast to truth and life and avoid what is false and lifeless. So let's pull together the insights we've gathered from 1 John 5, 21, and the pastoral postscript at the end of the letter. First, the closing warning presents a central concern to 1 John. The true knowledge of God and its source is Jesus Christ. According to verse 20, Christian knowledge of the truth is more than the acknowledgement of simply Jesus's birth and his death, but requires trusting Jesus as the source of understanding about God. Jesus is the one who gives us the understanding. As John wrote in his Gospel, Jesus is the one who makes the Father known, John one. This means that Jesus is not only the message, but the medium of our ministry. I wanna say that again to be clear. Jesus isn't just the message of our ministry, he is the medium. As the mediator of the new covenant, we do not merely present Jesus to others, we participate in Jesus. Said another way, Jesus is and must always be the chief shepherd and the true pastor in our churches. Verse 20 says, right before that abrupt ending, quote, we are in him who is true. Our ministry is not just about Jesus, but is actually accomplished by Jesus in whom we participatorily reside. Try to say that three times. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This leads to the second insight we can gather from 1 John five twenty one and that pastoral postscript. We must work hard to make sure that our churches and ministries are empowered and directed by Jesus. Based on this warning and its context, the point is that we must avoid at all costs any lifeless, idolatrous aspects in the church that take what belongs to Christ alone, as we just say. We speak often of being Christ-centered, but that might need some more definition. Christ must be the primary agent of our churches the sole foundation and the only mediator of our ministry of the new covenant Robert Yarborough one of my favorite and former Ted's professors who now serves at Covenant Seminary suggests in his commentary on 1 John 5:21 that this verse is quote encouraging believers to steer clear of idols that were ubiquitous fixtures in their cultures Yarborough always loved big words ubiquitous Ubiquitous means existing everywhere. So, ubiquitous fixtures in culture are those that exist all around us. They're in the air we breathe and the water we drink. What makes them dangerous, hear this, what makes them dangerous is that they, because they're everywhere, because they're all around us, they seem natural. They even seem neutral. But some of them may be formed and fed by the lifelessness of the world and therefore not fit for the living adopted children of God. Is it possible that we have failed to heed this warning at the end of 1 John? While none of our mission and vision statements would ever reveal such idolatry, have our hearts and hands taken what belongs to Christ and assigned it to another? This is the question to which we must now turn. Greg Strand has mentioned the book, and and I'll mention it and utilize it here, but Christopher Wright's book, Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times, that's the subtitle, tells you exactly what he's talking about, is one of the most helpful resources I have read in recent years for helping Christians think biblically about the idols in our world that have become, to use Yarbrough's language, ubiquitous fixtures in culture. In his examination of humanity's rebellion against God in the Old Testament, Wright shows that the root of idolatry is that we, get this, that we deify our own capacities and thereby make gods of ourselves, our choices, and all its implications. Said another way, idolatry is human rejection of the godness of God. That last statement is sharp and it raises a host of questions for the church. If idolatry, if idolatry can happen in relation to God, can it happen in relation to the church? Could it be possible that church pastors and leaders, to use Wright's definition, have deified our own capacities, our own choices, and all their implications? Or to say, that, or say it sharply, have we rejected the godness of the church? In most cases, this would would not be an intentional rejection of the church's godness, but the naive appropriation of ubiquitous fixtures in culture that have looked natural and neutral among all the blessings of God's common grace, but might be working subversively to challenge or deny the godness of our ministry. But how can the church know if it is in possession of idols. That is, how can our churches heed the warning of 1 John 5, 21? Relying again on Christopher Wright's work, the Bible reveals that the human heart manufactures idols in response to four things. These are the four that he gives. I'll give these and talk through them briefly. The human heart manufactures idols in response to our desires, our fears, our trusts, and our needs. First, our desires. Scripture warns us that there are things in this world that are so attractive that we crave them. We devote ourselves to them. They are most often common grace gifts of God, like beauty and power and strength. Things that are gifts from God, not intended to become God's. Wright gives examples like the adoration of sports stars. Get ready for Sunday, right? The honor of our military soldiers or the fame of a rock star. All these things entice us, even from a young age, which boy wouldn't want to be Joe Burrow on Sunday? The starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. Or which young woman wouldn't want to be absolutely beautiful to all who see her or sing with a beautiful voice that, 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 that draws thousands to hear. The world is full of things that entice us, things that seem natural or neutral that can become objects of worship and devotion. Now let's apply the lens of this idol to the church. Why is the size of our churches such an important category in the heart of almost every pastor? It is unbelievable how that is so strongly dominating the way we think about success. As do publishers, conference organizers, you name it. They all do. Which pastor does not want to be adored like a sports star, honored like a military soldier, or famous like a rock star? Now we never say it like that. We might not even think it straightforwardly. Like we might slap the wrist the moment the thought comes to mind. But our hearts, if we're being honest, our hearts are drawn to that. We might even say with honesty and integrity, all glory to God, yet our hearts quietly and subversively may be objecting and dissenting. And if or when we find some success, we masterfully can rationalize to ourselves that this is how the most people can be reached. But deep down, many of us crave success that is strongly defined by standards that look conspicuously like the world around us and its ubiquitous fixtures. And sadly, our congregations and even some of our elder boards may crave the same things. None of this is to guilt the pastor who currently serves thousands or pardon the pastor of a tiny church. I say these things so that we can hear the abrupt closing of 1 John with our hearts. Second, the human heart manufactures idols in response to things we fear. The Old Testament reveals how the pagan nations regularly turn the objects of their fear into gods. Other religions in the world reveal this. Many ritual practices such as avoiding the evil eye, the wearing of protective charms, and the use of magic and mantras are manifestations of the deified power of fear. Whatever can terrorize us can become a god to us. This is why the fear of the Lord is such a dominant theme in the Old Testament throughout scripture. Although in the modern world our lives are immeasurably safer and healthier than arguably any previous generation, our culture is consumed by anxiety and fear. Wright gives examples that include the way our culture is enraptured with health or fixated on security measures. He also suggests how leaders in society can use popular fears for their own political advantage, bolstering their power and authority. Let's apply this lens of, of this idol to the church. How often do the fears of our people dictate the teaching and preaching in our churches? Have we made God into a divine butler and cosmic therapist? To comfort our people's fears? And how many churches have had controlling leaders use fear to leverage power and authority? The fears of this age are ubiquitous, like a chameleon. It blends into the fabric of our daily lives, yet when they take root, they become the object of our worship and devotion. Could it be that many aspects of our ministries seek to placate the gods of this world rather than embrace the living God? Again, we would never say such a thing with our words, but our hearts might be telling a different story. Third, the human heart manufactures idols in response to things we trust. All of us tend to idolize the things in which we place our trust. We trust them because they secure for us the things we desire or offer us security from the things we fear. The things we trust turn into idols when we make all the sacrifices they demand in exchange for what they offer. Wright gives examples that include the way we aim for financial security against future threats or develop military might for national protection or spend a ton of time and money becoming personally obsessed with all the latest health and nutrition fads to gain security from the wear and tear of physical aging. Let's apply this, the lens of this idol to the church. When we remove the facade that might exist of the godness of our ministries, what do we honestly trust in for the success of our churches? Do we trust in a celebrity pastor? Or at least the skills and charisma of a primary minister in our church, maybe that's you. Do we put our trust in ministry programs, the quality of our music and worship, or the draw of our kids and youth ministries? A good test would be where our minds go when we are thinking about what needs to improve in our churches. Do the things that need improvement become a new coffee cafe, a better sound system, better decor, things in which we implicitly or secretly put our trust, as if God himself is limited by such things. Hopefully such examples help illuminate the ways our Bible-based churches can slowly and naively move away from the church's godness. Last, the human art manufactures idols in response to things we need. It doesn't take much convincing for us all to see how easily the things we need can dominate our thoughts and our actions. Jesus himself warned us not to worry about even our basic needs, arguably serving as a pastoral exhortation to avoid placing anything besides God as the object of our devotion. This means, however, that even Jesus was aware of the natural tendency, not only to emphasize the things we need, but in practice to deify them, or the sources from which they come. Again, Christopher Wright has some strong words. He says, having turned our back on the sole living creator of all that provides for our needs, we invent, and he describes us specifically in the Old Testament, surrogate deities to fill the vacuum. So we attribute the very good gifts of our one creator to the varied gods of the rain, and of the sun, and of the soil, and of sex, fertility, of dreams, and so on. Deuteronomy 8 even reveals a further layer to this idolatry. That even the failure to acknowledge the living God as the source of all that provides for our needs and contributes to our flourishing can lead to the arrogance that attributes all that provision to our own strength and effort. In this way, then, we can actually receive the provisions of God in a way that makes us not merely the recipient, but also the source, which is an idolatrous act of self-worship. Wright gives the example of both the ancient farmer or the modern capitalist who thinks that it was their power, strength, and skill of their hands that produced their wealth, or the ancient pharaoh, or modern economic superpower who boasts that their kingdom was self-made. Let's apply the lens of this idol to the church. It takes a lot for a church to exist and survive. Budgets, buildings, and backsides in the seat can become not merely a constant focus of our attention, but even the measuring rod of every decision we make. This can redirect our focus to the sources of our needs, which deifies them in practice. Even worse, how many of us feel personal success or failure based upon the perceived success of our ministries? The number of people coming or leaving, we take personal. The strength or weakness of our budget, we take personal. Or something to do with our building and facility. That is... Have we actually participated in God's ministry in his church, a church he said, Christ said he would build, and yet placed ourselves not merely as a recipient but as a source of its success? Is it really your ministry, your church? Are you its real source? Again, it's not what we say with our mission statements or pulpit comments but what dwells deep within the secret places in our hearts. Can you see now how important it was for the Apostle John to abruptly close his letter with a warning to the children of God about idolatry? Idols are very difficult to see. They are not made of stone and wood in our day. In our day they are made of desire and devotion. That is because they are forged and fashioned in the heart They are a serious health risk to the individual or the church if it goes undetected without an intentional exploratory scan. And as Wright suggests, the only antidote to these idolatries we just discussed is to return God to the center of all these domains. So if we have removed the godness of the church in any way, God must be put back at the center. I would suggest we go so far as to pray regularly something like this for each idolatrous temptation. Regarding things the church desires, Lord, help us to define success based upon the standard of the cross. Guard our hearts from the lure of numbers and name recognition and the sinful desire to receive honor, glory, and fame. Father, forgive us for not giving to you every ounce of glory and praise. May your name be made great, not only among the nations, but in my community, in my congregation, and Father, in my heart. Regarding the things the church fears, Lord, how easily we fear created and temporary things and not the eternal creator. Father, forgive us for using your name in vain as we seek to leverage your almighty power to serve our church as a divine butler or cosmic therapist. or even to serve us as a successful pastor. And forgive us for how we use fear to leverage power or control over our congregation, the sheep of your flock. May you be the only one we fear, not only in word and deed, but even in our hearts, especially in the dark moments we face regarding things the church trusts. Lord, even though we so easily speak of grace, our hearts replace your grace with a love of our own goods and strengths. We have had our hearts and minds discipled by the ways of the world in how we define success and how we seek to secure it. Father, forgive us for trusting in our own skills and our clever systems and programs and not in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. May the trust we placed in you when we first tasted the grace of the cross become magnified in every aspect of our life as a disciple of Jesus and in the life of the body of Christ, the church. Finally, regarding things we need, Lord, how easily we long for the things we need, making them the constant object of our devotion, even worship. How easily we think of people as resources to be used or as giving units, Lord, help us and not as you looked at them, the objects of your sacrifice and service. And how could it be that we would ever, even for a moment, look at the church you are building and claim any part of it as our own doing, our own domain. Father, forgive us for making our needs our God's and for living vicariously through your provision and power in your church. May our needs become offerings of prayer And may our successes become offerings of praise. I'm going to spend the rest of my time addressing some contemporary challenges, as the title of this talk suggests, that that I worry are a strong, idolatrous temptation facing churches like ours in the EFCA. I don't think it's specific to the EFCA, but I'm talking to my brothers and sisters here. In light of our earlier discussion and the lenses Christopher Wright gave us for seeing the ways we manufacture idols in the church, I worry that the challenges of ministry in the contemporary world today have fostered idols that need to be addressed, specifically too. But before I address them, let me make two preliminary comments. First, a brief summary of what we've covered thus far. The warning to keep ourselves from idols in 1 John 5, 21 is commanding us, the children of God, to make Christ the focus of our devotion, the foundation of truth in life, and therefore the sole mediator of the church and its ministries. We just sang beautifully, I love listening to my brothers and sisters, in Christ alone. Is that not a ministry philosophy? As we explained earlier, Jesus is not only the message, but also the medium of our ministry. This means we must be extremely careful not to let the seemingly natural and neutral, ubiquitous features in culture to slither past us and plant themselves in the foundation of our churches. And as Wright helped us see, Scripture explains how these features will be manufactured in our hearts, from the things. We desire, fear, trust, and need. In so doing, we will deify our own capacities and choices and make them implicitly our gods. This results in idolatry, the taking of the godness of God and transferring it to something else. Second, a little context, I'm going to discuss what I worry are two contemporary idols that offer real challenges to our churches today. I'm not saying that every church worships these idols or that those that struggle with them are entirely devoted. All of us, in one way or another, deal with these or taste these. We feel the gravitas of each of them. That doesn't mean we're devoted disciples. But I believe that these idols are so thoroughly enmeshed in our own social culture and even our Christian culture that they are likely temptations for all of our churches and all of its pastors and leaders. That is, these idols become temptations because they are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. While this, I am also raising these to pastors and church leaders. I'm not speaking these to church members and attendees. While the second idol is one that I think all Christians in our culture must face, I think the first idol, the one I'm about to address, is primarily the temptation of pastors, church staffs, elder boards, etc. Finally, I raise these idols as an act of confession, not confrontation. I am one of you. I'm not a prophet, don't stone me, I'm a pastor. And that command in 1 John 5, 21 is just as equally authoritatively given to me. But I'm your brother, co-labor in the gospel. And I wanna address a couple things. I raise these with the hope that our churches will heed the warning of the apostle John and keep away from idolatry, whatever form it takes. So challenge, idolatrous challenge number one, the business of the organization versus the business of the gospel. I was in the academic world for really most of my 30s. In fact, to be honest with you, going through a PhD program, I was in a library for really all my 20s. So I started pastoral work at the age of 39. I just finishing eight years. Com- compared to Bill, I am in infancy. Uh, When it comes to pastoral ministry, I have a lot to learn. So when I transitioned from the academic world to the pastorate, I was so excited to get any kind of opportunity to go to sessions where I would be learning practical pastoral skills from experts and and wiser uh, men and women in the church who could help communicate that to me. Because I knew I was green. I knew that so much of pastoral ministry was not just speaking from exegetical notes and sermon notes, but was counseling and ministering and compassionate ministry. So when a pastor with some reputation was Within driving distance of our church and one of my fellow pastors said, we should go listen to what he has to say. I was like, I was all, I was all on board. I'm like, let's go. It was my first few months of ministry and I, it was a one-day thing. It was, it was not much to attend this. It was a drive. The, myself and our three other pastors drove and we went to this conference, a one-day, six-hour kind of event, and I was so excited to hear what he was going to say. And my heart sank and was a little confused when the three things he talked about were parking lots, sound systems, and kids' ministry, specifically security. that doesn't mean those things aren't important, please hear me. But I even at one point kind of looked back and said, is anybody else kind of wondering, I thought this was for pastors. See, I had just come from the month before, one of my early moments in pastoral ministry, when a man in our church we're in northern Illinois. He'd gone up on a business trip in Wisconsin. He had a stroke literally as he was closing his hotel door, door to go to work that day. A cleaning lady found him. He was flown back to the hospital near us in Rockford, Illinois. And I drove down to a local Rockford hospital to be with this wife. And I literally, right, I'd been in the library in my 20s. And, and I'd been in the professorate in my 30s. And now at 39, I was walking a situation, that is not easy. And it's hard to cover that in a seminary class. And I'm sitting there, I I only met her husband at the pastoral meet and greet when I was candidating. And met her one other time since. And I'm sitting in this little room, this waiting room of a hospital before we go and sit with her husband who was literally about to be with Jesus in two days. And he would never wake up or respond again. And she looks at me and she says, what am I supposed to do now? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not exactly, I didn't say this, (laughs) I'm not exactly sure either. So when I went then a month or so later to this pastor's conference, I was craving, I was craving help with the ministry of the gospel. And we spent two hours on parking lots. I did not expect that to my first pastor's conference to address nothing that would have counted as a a task of pastors three centuries ago. Is the difference simply technology? The issues caused by cars and electricity, for example? What What would Richard Baxter have asked at that gathering? Maybe my transition from the professori to the pastorate had made me not understand pastoring. Maybe I just didn't understand. Of course, it's not hard to look at those three topics and see how the lenses right gives us might give a little bit of insight. It's not a stretch to suggest that a focus on kids' area, especially security, is connected with the things our society clearly fears. Like, it doesn't mean we shouldn't protect our kids. The parking lot may be simply one of those things we desire with a primary value in our culture on comfort, which which includes convenience and accessibility. And the sound system may be connected to things we trust, since we know that those are required for the success of a ministry if we want to draw the number of people to come. Please hear this. I'm not saying that the church should not use the common grace gifts of our creator to assist the special grace ministry of the church. A church can honor our Lord and love our congregants by having a well-thought-out parking lot, a very competent sound system, and a very intentional kids' area with beautiful security measures. What concerns me is the way that these tools for ministry become the basis of ministry and how the tools become the substance of ministry. I worry that we have replaced biblically mandated practices in the church with versions that are motivated and modified by cultural pressures. Those ubiquitous features in the air we breathe and the water we drink. Let me, let me, let me flesh out those worries. One would be this, I worry that the church has replaced the shepherding pastor with the entrepreneurial leader. What surprised me most about my conversations with other pastors and the pastoral conferences I began to attend was how minimally or not at all they dealt with the traditional and I would think biblical roles of the pastor, preaching, counseling, catechism, there's that C word again, visitation, church membership, the ordinances, Christian ceremonies like weddings and funerals the office of the pastor, elder, or deacon, or maybe even important theological truths that need more focus and definition for ministry. Rather, what I heard were topics related to the management of the church, computer software, staff procedures, hiring and firing practices, multi-site campuses and their organization, managing a budget, ideas for branding, especially in regard to the use of social media, or the various strategies for numerical growth. Honestly, I felt like many of those could be discussed at any small business meeting anywhere. The term I heard used most often was not pastor, but leader. Is leader in the Bible that way? Or is it shepherd? Now, all of the things about which I worry are legitimate aspects of ministry in the 21st century. That's what makes this so hard. It's not simple, like we'll forget the rest of that. No, we're living in the 21st century with its technological and commercial nature, especially in the US. But my worry is that such things like weeds may choke the plants we are actually trying to grow. I worry, secondly, that the church has replaced historic biblical discipleship with modern psychological therapy. It has long been documented that pastoral care in America has gradually changed its focus in a book written almost 40 years ago by E. Holyfield, that's not Evander Holyfield, E. Brooks Holyfield documents how church ministry has changed from pastoral theology to popular psychology, or as his subtitle frames it, from salvation to self-realization. Theology is almost a bad word in our churches. It's simply academic. I couldn't even use the word in my first five years there because they thought I was just an academic. No, I'm a pastor. Holyfield uncovers in the history of pastoral work that the attitudes gradually changed in pastoral ministry from a message of self-denial to one of self-love, and the church just followed right along. He argues near the end of his book, quote, "The introspective piety in the American Protestant heritage" The preoccupation with inwardness, rebirth, conversion, revival was easily translated into a secular psychological piety. Walk into a bookstore and see how much theology, catechizing books, rather than books on life improvement, exist. Parenting, marriage, sex lives, finances. As Christians seek their best life now, Truman might say that this is all part of the shift toward expressive individualism. How can the godness of church compete when the message centers on the self? Brothers and sisters, we may be in one of the most biblically illiterate moments in several centuries. Third, I worry the church has replaced the sacred corporate gathering with a secular consumeristic event. With the modern focus on the self, the local church now needs to make a case for its own existence. Who needs a we when the focus is so strongly at me, uh, aimed at me? Arguably, in response to the focus on self-realization in the self, there is a huge gravitational pressure to make Sunday morning corporate worship spectacular, as if God and his gospel are not spectacular enough. The pressure is understandable. Understandable. American culture has discipled every person from childhood to be an expert consumer. We just need to know this. Our people, we, are expert consumers. We know exactly what we want and exactly how we want it. And the world has catered to that. I was shocked. And several of our Americans were, when we, this was eight, 17 years ago now, when we first went to the UK, and they didn't give free refills. I'd never seen that before. Or, 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 or how about this? I've, I've, never seen, I've never seen where literally from like, there was about one to two rather than 12 to one. Every employee takes lunch at the same time and like the banks would just close. stores would go. I mean, America would be so strategic to say, well, you first and we alternate and we're open. I mean, 24 hours, 24. In, in, in Scotland, I might only have one hour and I'm like, can I cash a check? Um, we're all, to, all 12 of us are taking lunch at the exact same time. It wasn't customer friendly. I wasn't used to that. (laughs) Unfortunately, this has slowly turned our sacred corporate gathering into arguably a secular consumeristic event. If they don't like our worship, they will go somewhere else. If they don't like our preaching, they, they will they will go somewhere else. If they don't like our kids' program or even the looks on our walls or the way that we handle this or that, they will simply do what they do with every restaurant and every store. They'll shop elsewhere. And you feel that. Preferences over music divide over age. Remove our children for convenience. Music is an experience. Message is humorous and relevant to the issue I want addressed. How can we even preach through an entire biblical book if that is what we're facing? Who's gonna spend time in Leviticus in one of our churches? What do you do with Isaiah? Who has time for the Old Testament prophets or lamentations? Now we even deliver our events to your TV or iPhone. Have God delivered to you in your pajamas. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea of YouTube. Finally, I worry that the church has replaced the biblical ordinances with the sacrament of worship. I heard a paper at the Evangelical Theological Society a few years ago that stuck with me. The presenter suggested that worship music in church has become the new evangelical sacrament, ordinance. His argument was that worship was more spiritually significant and edifying to many evangelical Christians than baptism in the Lord's Supper. And I really do think he might be right. I was shocked when I came to a church that had been in existence for just shy of 50 years with Christians who'd been there for 20 or 30 who'd never even been baptized and had no category for the practice, but they had a whole lot of thoughts on the choir. While many Christians fail to get baptized or minimize the Lord's Supper, most would suggest that what feeds them is worship. Wars over open and closed communion tables have been entirely eclipsed by worship wars over hymns and contemporary music. This simply shows that what feeds people in our churches is an existential experience, and we all feel that. It is the church's ordinance and we better have a good sound system. I remember there was, when we went out in Southern California, there was a church with, with whom I was talking as I was feeling this tug to leave the professoriate and move to the pastorate, and they had talked to me about coming at some point and, 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 and ended up obviously not doing that, but I went and sat in on some staff meetings, and this was an interesting church. This is a South Orange County, California church. It would literally, on Sunday, it was multi-site, multi-campus, their main campus alone would have somewhere around 7,500 people come on a Sunday. They would do, uh, between Saturday night and Sunday morning, they would do five services just at their main campus. And their Sunday evening was literally, between the two services, somewhere around 3,500, almost all millennials, uh, undergraduates, college students, young adults. I mean, they were cool. In fact, the first thing one of my, my wife said to me when I was going to talk to this church is she says, I really don't think you're cool enough. <laughs> like they want a quarterback, not an offensive lineman. <laughs> but I'll never forget, I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was the design was perfect. It was absolutely gorgeous. The way that the the people would go, it was hip, it was cool. The music would come, people were rocking in that church building. I mean, you would think that they were so thought out about what the church does and is, they knew that existential experience. They knew how to do that well and thousands were coming. And then I sat the following week in a, after visiting, I sat in a staff meeting, 60 some people and I'm just observing. And they bring up the Lord's Supper. And I heard literally one person say, "Yeah, yeah." Why do we do that? And I heard somebody else give an answer. And I'm thinking, I'm just supposed to be a server, but I can't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and in some awkward way, said, "Are you joking me? What's the Lord's Supper?" And I just spent. I, I asked the question first. Could I give a little summary? of what the Lord's Supper is. And for about five or eight minutes, I just talked about the Lord's Supper and about significance and about how Christ ordained this and what its significance is and some of the things in the church and they were looking and we would blank stares. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that the business of the organization does not eclipse the business of the gospel. I worry that we have actually submitted a a biblical ecclesiology to a free market missiology. That's my concern. We have actually eclipsed biblical ecclesiology and replaced it with what we call missions or missional or missiological that really is borrowing from the free market. And we talk about Jesus being the source, not just something that's just the message, but the medium. And I worry that lacking a biblical ecclesiology and replacing it with a free market missiology actually denies that Jesus is Savior. Heeding the warning of 1 John 5, 21, we might ask, have our churches forsaken the, doctrine, the doctrinal reality that Jesus is Savior and sought ministry success through organizational skill rather than gospel seriousness? None of this is to deny, brothers and sisters, hear this. None of this is to deny the proper application of God's common grace resources, but we better heed the pastoral warning about the idols of the heart. Last idol, a challenge number two, the politics of this world versus the politics of the world to come. Blown away by my experience, my wife and I, when we were just 27 years old going over to St. Andrews, Scotland, uh, it, it literally is a country that speaks the same language, but it's so different. And it, it was the first time, me being from Rockford, Illinois, right, an hour and 15 minutes from here, near the border of Wisconsin, raised by a single mom, traveled nowhere. I'd been to Wisconsin. That's not that far. But I saw none of the other parts of the world. I was completely inundated with this culture and these things, and then to live as an alien and a stranger in another country was actually one of the best catechizing moments for my spiritual life. And I remember we got there on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday morning, can't remember, and by Thursday we were just overwhelmed. I I remember we were in Little Tesco, right there in downtown St. Andrews, and we spent 20 minutes trying to figure out, does this detergent have bleach or not? And my wife literally kind of teared up just to, just the weight of the emotional change. And, and we felt so awkward and so strange until Sunday morning when we walked into St. Andrew's Baptist Church where we attended for three years. We walked into this little fellowship with 103 members, maybe 140-ish people would come on a Sunday. And we walked in, this American couple, we were greeted as brothers and sisters. And when we sang, I wept like a baby. Because it was the first time I realized that there was a place in this foreign land where I was a belonging member. I'm sure all of us have lamented the past two years in our country and arguably in our churches. Although my churches and elders and staff have been unified throughout, we have tasted among some of the members in our church the bitter division over things like COVID procedures and political talking points. You would hope that the Bible's clear vision of the Christian is being in but not of the world and existing as exiles, aliens, and strangers in every, even in the very places we were born and happily live would mean something. But I worry that from childhood, even in our churches, our hearts' deepest patriotism has been aimed not at our heavenly father, but at our nation's forefathers. None of this is to deny an appreciation and deep affections for God's common grace blessings in the nation of our birth or current home. Rather, it is to say that if we are not careful, our hearts will turn such things into idols. And certainly none of us need more evidence than the last two years to see the devastation such disordered loves can do to the church of Christ. What concerns me is the way that the evangelical church's engagement and participation with national politics has become intertwined with its identity and ministry. I worry that we have replaced biblically mandated identity markers in the church with versions that are motivated and modified by cultural pressures, those ubiquitous features in the air we breathe and the water we drink. Let me just give Four brief examples. I worry we have replaced the polis city of God with the politics of humanity. The Bible tells the story of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The account of this story begins right in Genesis 4 with the two sons of Adam representing the origin of these two cities. These two cities represent different kings and different kingdoms. And each polis has a different politic. In his book, The City of God, Augustine writes, quote, two cities have been created by two loves. That is, the earthly by self-love extending even to contempt of God and the heavenly by love of God extending to contempt of self. The one glorifies in itself, the other in the Lord. It's like Augustine and Truman were kind of working together in this. The biblical story shows how the city of man from Babel to Babylon is the city of this world in contrast to the city of God which belongs to the world to come. The biblical story shows how every person engages in the struggle to trust and live in the city of man or the promised and heavenly city of God. This reality requires a church to do serious catechism. Instead, I worry we have replaced God's polis with human politics. And it has become instinctive. I remember when I first got to Biola, and and, and what I'm about to say is not a critique of that institution. I love those brothers and sisters, and they are clearly driven by the gospel. But that instinctive cultural God and country is so strong that I was at the first graduation ceremony as a professor back in 2005, new professor, first graduation ceremony, and I had this student in one of my Bible and theology classes from the Philippines And she was so excited to come to Biola and Talbot and to study God's word. And then she was going to go back to the Philippines to serve in ministry. And I got to know her over the course of that year. And then as we're sitting in the ceremony, I'm watching as she goes up. She's waving at me. I'm waving at her. And I noticed right after she gets her diploma, she goes to the side of the stage. And she stood. And behind her was an American flag. And now if I hadn't just been in the U.K. for three years, I might not have even noticed it. But I kind of wondered, why is there an American flag there? I mean, did they think this was Mexico, and they're just making sure you know it's Southern California? No, honestly, I didn't understand, especially when the mission statement is to impact the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't understand why it was there. I even, I even called some of the administrators and says, why is there an American flag there? And actually, nobody knew. It is so instinctive. Why not have a backdrop of the school's logo or something else? Why was it the American flag? Again, that, that doesn't mean I'm against the American flag. It just felt to me out of place with a girl going to the Philippines. It's instinctive. It's instinctive, unfortunately, because I worry, secondly, we've replaced the church as a holy nation with a Christian nationalism. And we can't define all of that. That's complex and others more specialized than I have spoken to it, but I can say this, the Apostle Peter describes the church as a holy nation, which means a people set apart from the other nations in the world. A unique nation based not on ethnic identity or geographic boundaries, but on allegiance to King Jesus and the kingdom of God. The use of nation in 1 Peter 2, 9 is intended to recall the sacred and separate relationship of Israel to God in the old covenant. As was the plan from the beginning in the new covenant, God's chosen nation is based on the blood of Christ. Revelation 5.9, for Christ, quote, ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Hebrews explains that Christians are strangers and exiles on earth who are seeking a different homeland as they desire a better country that is a heavenly one this means, as, as Greg or others have already said, that every Christian is a dual citizen. I remember in 2004, I was the warden of a dorm. That sounds like I worked in a prison. But in the UK, a warden is a resident director. So I guess a dormitory is kind of like a prison, right? So I was the warden in a dormitory, and we were watching the 04 Olympics. And I'm sitting in this room. And, of course, I've got people from, I, next to me is a girl from Germany, two seats over is a guy from Brazil, lots of Brits but I'm the American. And of course it was focusing on the British athletes, which you would expect. But every so often in a race, a particular American would win and I would cautiously cheer. I wasn't dancing around the room, but I felt this weird pull because I'm living in the UK and I enjoyed rooting for Team Britain, yet my heart belonged to a different country. And every time, I had to navigate that tension of rooting for the athletes in this particular country, but rooting for Team USA. My body was in Great Britain, but my heart rooted for a different country. That is exactly what the Christian is called to do. If we are not intentional, our citizenship in the holy nation of God will get swallowed into an earthly nation and its command for allegiance. We need to nurture our allegiance to the kingdom of God. I'd like to adjust a slogan made by the former president. Rather than make America great again, at least for our churches, we must make the kingdom great again. It is a doctrinal priority that in this generation, We need to buffer the kingdom of God and the hearts and the minds of our people. And if if biblical ecclesiology needs some help, so does the theology of the kingdom. I got into a little bit of trouble when I took the American flag out of my church. It's still on the front by the road. I didn't want it in the sanctuary. There was a bit of a battle. I'm sure I should have done it more slowly and carefully, I admit, I should have come and talked to all of you. But I'll never forget, even after some interesting church chats, congregational meetings, conversations with people, when a military veteran came up to me after a service one Sunday. And he had tears in his eyes. And he said, as we were singing songs about the universal God and the world that he loves, I immediately thought back to that church chat where you took it pretty hard. Yeah, I did take it pretty hard. Where you talked about how we are an embassy of the kingdom. He says, I couldn't even sing. Because all of a sudden, as much as I love this particular country, I knew there was another country to which I belonged." He goes, I never saw it before. I don't think he's alone. I worry we've replaced the church as an embassy with the church as an interest group. George Ladd describes the church in this age as a colony of heaven, love that language, which in the blessings of Christ through the spirit enjoys in advance the life of the age to come. As a colony of heaven, the church is an embassy of the kingdom of God among all the kingdoms of humanity. What a beautiful image. We took our son, when he was born in Scotland, to the U.S. Embassy in Edinburgh, Scotland. And we're walking up, this is post 9-11, and so there's guards and barriers everywhere, but there's Scottish flags or British flags and accents everywhere. But when we walked into that embassy, we were technically in American territory. The guy at the door checking our things through the metal detector had an accent that I knew was not from Rockford, Illinois. He was from New York. And the lady that did the paperwork for us was from Houston, Texas. See, I was standing in Edinburgh in one sense, but that room, that building, was an embassy of another country. Every Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, when our people gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, you may be in whatever in this particular country, in whatever state you're in, but you are technically in an embassy, a colony of heaven, of the kingdom of God. <laughs> Unfortunately, many of our churches have looked like interest groups, often not simply for one nation, but even for one political party. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Here again, The Apostle Peter's words, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Lastly, I worry we've replaced penitence and prayer with power and persuasion. The political battles we see in our world today, in our country especially, are battles for power and persuasiveness. Persuasiveness but the church's battle is neither against flesh or blood or with strength or might, but by God's spirit, the prophet says. Have we forgotten this core biblical truth? Have we forgotten the words of Jesus to Pilate that all the authority given to rulers of this world is given from above? Or do we really think that a Christian president or Christian Congress in one country can turn the tide against That pastoral postscript in 1 John which says the whole world is under the control of the evil one? If not in theory, then certainly we seem to believe it in practice. If allegiance to the city of man is reflected in the pursuit of power and persuasion, then allegiance to the city of God is reflected in the pursuit of penitence and prayer. Jesus taught us this prayer and posture. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Forgive us and deliver us from the evil one. But as Satan does so well, we've been tempted with all the pleasures, properties, and powers of this world, just like Christ was. It is hard to be penitent and prayerful when one is powerful and persuasive. Not us, O church. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. My concern is that we have submitted our kingdom allegiance to a national allegiance, and not lived as dual citizens. If biblical ecclesiology is rooted in doctrine of Jesus as Savior, then a kingdom allegiance is rooted in the doctrine that Jesus is Lord. He is the president. Heeding the warning of 1 John 5, 21, we must ask, have our churches forsaken the doctrinal reality that Jesus is Lord and sought worldly success through human kingdoms and not the kingdom of God? None of this is to deny the appropriateness of a humble patriotism. It is simply to make sure that we remember our, our true and eternal home and seek it with all our hearts so we live now like foreigners living in exile who regularly gather at a local embassy where we pledge allegiance to the true King and Lord. We flee from idolatry when we make Jesus the Lord and make the kingdom great again. Let me end with this little story. The error of Moses in Numbers 20 is interesting to think about. Let's not make the error Moses made when the Lord provided water for his people through him. The Lord told him merely to speak to the rock and God would make the water pour out. Instead, Moses took the staff and struck the rock twice with it and water flowed. God still provided for his people But his punishment of Moses was for a specific reason. Do you remember what God said to Moses? I'm punishing you, quote, because you did not trust in me enough. You did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Brothers and sisters, drop the staff. Trust in God and his word to be the source of your ministry. Don't reject the godness of the church. For our church is successful not by might nor by power, not by parking lots or sound systems or kids' ministries and their securities or Christian presidents or all the fame and power and persuasion in the Lord, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Father, thank you for your good words to us through the Apostle John. May you see in our churches a biblical ecclesiology that trusts in Jesus as Savior, and a kingdom allegiance that trusts in Jesus as Lord in the face of the idols that are lifeless in this world. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.